invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter uh, 20. Yeah, we wish we were in 20, don't we? Not really, that would be... I wonder why 20 got in my head. What's in chapter 20, Exodus 20? Quick. Oh, good for you, Ten Commandments. You know your catechism. Good. All right. Um, You ever get caught between a rock and a hard place? You ever get yourself, you know, driving down a one-way street realizing... There is no way out, especially if you have a camper behind you. And uh, some of you maybe ha- can, can identify with that story of getting stuck. Uh, and then the, bri- the, the, uh, the tunnel ahead of you says 13-foot clearance, and your camper is 15 or whatever. Uh, you're backing up. Uh, Israel has got itself physically uh, in a predicament. They are sandwiched between the mountains and the sea. And behind them is Pharaoh with the Egyptian army. And they've been wandering around. In fact, they had made good progress, but they circled back, and it actually looked as if they were lost. But we know know the old adage, not all those who wander are lost. Uh, The Lord has set a trap. He set a trap for Pharaoh and uh, the whole army of Egypt. Uh, Chapter 14 is the history of this military conflict. And chapter 15 is the hymn. Uh, we're not, we're, I, I really wanted to make both part of the same message, but we're not going to make it. You know, you know, we won't make it. So the history, chapter 14, the hymn, chapter 15. And our experience, our history with the Lord leads to our worship. We'll follow this in um, kind of some narrative coat hangers as we go along the way. First, verses 1 to 9, Pharaoh's pursuit. The word pursuits here used several times. Pursue, pursue, pursue. Israel does, in fact, turn back. It looks like they're lost. They're encamped with the desert on one side, uh, the sea on the other, and they're in a really bad military position. Pharaoh and most of his chief leaders are saying, what did we do? I mean, the economy was bad enough because of the plagues, and then we just let the whole workforce go. Like, lockdown, isolation, don't go to work. I mean, we just let them go. I mean, they're not even working from home. They left home. They're gone. And, and we, can, we know what it's been like. You know, if, if there's no work, what's it, what's it feel like? Not good. And it takes a long time for the economy to turn around. Imagine this, they've had the plagues already, natural, natural disasters, as they would understand, the hand of God upon them. The economy is wrecked, and now, well, Pharaoh's about to get his military ruined. But it, think of this for, uh, for, from Israel's perspective. Um, no sooner have they left, kind of, Egypt. They're still within the territory uh, and Pharaoh's possessions, you know, of that area. Um, No sooner do they get this far and the past sneaks up on them. Have you ever experienced that? You're making progress, you're moving a few steps forward, and then your past creeps up on you. You're reminded of it. Here's where Israel is at as Pharaoh pursues them. Pharaoh regrets his decision, and this is a, a matter of possession. This is a matter of control. Who owns 
the people of God. To whom is the Hebrew a master? I'm sorry, a slave. Who is their master? Is their master Pharaoh? Is their master Yahweh the Lord? This is the question. Pharaoh determines they still belong to him. He plied with God, you know, he went along kind of, sort of, in order to get things to feel better after the plagues, but it really is a contest of ownership. Well, the, he, he, there's this, this wonderful scholarly debate about the Red Sea and where it's located. And I mean, we have a hard time pronouncing the names of these little villages. We have a harder time actually identifying where they are. We really don't exactly know where they are. As we, as we go forward into other literature in the Bible, we recognize some place names, some cities that are connected with the Red Sea and particularly the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, you, you can see where Ramesses had been in Sukkoth, where they got initially after the, the Passover night. And then they're journeying toward Mount Sinai, which is across the Gulf of the Aqaba. It's part of the Red Sea. And it's, it's the, can I, I'll turn right, left, right. It's the northeast side of the Dead Sea. It's a little finger that comes up. And um, it's sizable, but it's crossable. Not, not as it is, but in terms of how much time it could possibly take to get across. Maybe it, it ranges anywhere from 6 to 15 miles wide. So this is likely the place where this is all happening. Um, we could go through the language. The word in Hebrew is yam suf. Yam is the word for lake or sea. They just have one generic word for a body of water. Uh, suf is a word that sometimes it, it might sound like it's translated the word reed, like a papyrus reed. And you can read about the reeds read about the reeds. In, in uh, early chapters of Exodus, when Moses is along the bulrushes. But the Hebrew etymology of the word suf actually may have to do with, uh, with the word end. The tip, the end of the Gulf of Aqaba would make a lot of sense. Well, we won't go into all, all, the, all the academics of that, but I just want you to know that there's, there's enough solid evidence, a great journal article, 1983, um, that, puts, that puts the Reed Sea to rest. And we have the Red Sea as we know it. Like, okay, mm-hmm, yeah. Well, when, anyway, Pharaoh's pursuit. Not, not only that, but now we've got Israel's paranoia. Uh, verses 10 to 12, let's, let's pick this up. Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Yeah. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, in that interesting turn of phrase, they cry out to the Lord, Moses is the mediator. You know, when, when they're yelling at Moses, it's as if they're yelling at the Lord. He is their mediator. He's their representative before Yahweh. They said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt you've taken us out here to die? You can kind of sense their tone. What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? 
Isn't this what we, what we said to you? We told you. Leave us alone. We'll just serve the Egyptians. It would have been better if we served the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. I mean, they're, they're afraid. And quite often, fear will manifest itself in anger. And yeah, I think you can sense that. Israel, up until this point, you know, they, they've been cruising pretty good. I suppose it's maybe 200 plus miles to get from Ramesses to the Gulf of Aqaba. And they've got a pretty good hike. They're probably going 2.7 miles per hour. Put that on your treadmill. You go 2.7. It's doable. And recognize they had the cloud by day and the fire by night. This is a 24-7 journey. Now, if you're, you're escaping from Egypt, you think you're going to stop? Not me. I keep on going. I'll drive 12 hours. Nancy drives 12 hours. Maybe one. And then I'll go 11 more. Not quite. But you got this rotation, right? And, they're, and they're, I mean, they're booking it. And they're going. Then the chariots, you know, they can go a little bit faster than 2.7 miles per hour. And these are the choice. Weapons of mass destruction. And, and Israel have really, yeah, they're in formation uh, in an orderly way, but they've, they made bricks for 400 years. I mean, they don't know how to swing a sword, throw a spear, stop a chariot. They don't have any Molotov cocktails. Nothing of that nature. They had their eyes on the cloud until, of course, they look back. And they look back and then they become fearful and this fear metastasizes into complaint. And they complain against God and against God's servant. It is a warning for the people. And, and there is a sense in which I suppose they were fair-weather disciples. Um, this was alluded to in the testimony, right? We might, we might have the temptation to ask, well, if God is with me, I'll never have troubles. Not, not true. And actually not what's promised. What's promised is that he will be with us in the valley of the shadow. He'll go with us through it. No, disappointment, discomfort, trial, turmoil causes us to be tempted to stop believing and start complaining. And notice how this, this develops. They reinterpret the past. It really wasn't that bad. We're back there. Yeah, we didn't have straw. We had to get our own straw, but you know, it wasn't that bad. At least... When we went to get straws, it was just a bit of shade. I don't know. They, they restate their, their own unbelief. We told you so. And, and then they do reject, they rebel against the help that's led them thus far. Hmm. But he's promised to lead them through the valley. And what's fascinating here. And we, we need to be careful because faith is an absolute essential to receive the gospel, isn't it? 
by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are exhorted to trust and to believe on Jesus and Him alone. But here's a gift here in uh, this passage that isn't exactly contingent upon faith, is it? There's probably a mix in the multitude. We, we already saw this in a couple chapters back at Passover, a mixed multitude, mixed ethnically and probably mixed religiously, mixed faith. So you've got some that are saying, we can go forward. And there's others looking back, let's surrender. You've got this mix. But the, the God will do his work whether this people is faithful or not. He promised he would bring them out. And he brings them out. Even if some of them didn't actually believe. Now, recognize we're not talking about the same kind of salvation. We're talking about a nation that is freed from slavery and formed formed as a nation. But there is this premise in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. He cannot deny Himself. Oh, we could think of Peter and his denial of knowing Jesus, faithless. But Christ was faithful and just to forgive him his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. And even this forgiveness is because when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, this is the paranoia of, of Israel. In verses 13 to 14, now Moses comes back with a prompting. That might sound a little gentle. Um, we'll call it perenesis. That means exhortation. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Get this. Fear not. Stand firm. Look. Be quiet. The Lord will fight for you. How is it supposed to respond? This way. Wait. Wait. Do you ever have a hard time with that? I'm not seeing or hearing any nod. I'm not hearing any amen. I mean, this is true. You struggle with waiting. Are you American? You struggle with waiting. I mean, think of the classic Bible passages that, that we'll go to at certain places in life. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Isaiah 40. And it goes on. It says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's exactly what's been going on for three days. As Israel leaves Egypt and gets to the Gulf of Aqaba, the Red Sea. They have not been weary. They have not fainted. And the context of Isaiah 40 is the exodus. This is a miraculous journey that they take. God is sustaining His people. He's lifting His people, carrying them on eagles' wings. Well, and 
Exodus 19, verse 4 says that. I know we get ahead of ourselves in the narrative, but Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Be still. Those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength like the eagles. It's, it's, it's about the Exodus. It's about being raised on eagles' wings, and he, he f- carried them flight through all the way to the sea. Whenever Israel reads the Psalms, hears them prayed, be still before the Lord, this is what is supposed to come to their mind. The Exodus. We waited for him, and he rescued us. Wow. This is not unlike our experience. And often in spiritual battle, spiritual warfare, there is not much to do but to stand and stand firm. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 6 when he tells us to put on the the armor of God, the whole armor of God, he says that you would be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he later on goes down to uh, verse 13. He says that you would be able to withstand on the evil day, and having done so, stand firm. Stand therefore. Do you get the point? Stand. Now there's one offensive weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. Everything else is that you're shod, protected. Don't give up ground. Don't go backwards. Don't give up ground. And and we're reminded maybe of uh, Zerubbabel's experience in Zechariah 4.6. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You get in that bind, what do you do? You wait on the Lord. Well, this is Moses' instruction, and then comes the Lord's promise. The The Lord gets involved here. Verse 15, it's shocking, isn't it? Why do you cry to me? Like, man, I'm, I'm glad I didn't hear that voice when I'm praying for help. Can you imagine? You're crying out. It says they cry out to the Lord and they said to Moses, and then the Lord says, what are you crying to me for? Now, maybe you've said that in another context, in another relationship. Now, the word cry is kind of interesting. It can also mean muster. Like, why are you mustering me? Why are you calling me to arms? And the Lord obviously knows. But this is fascinating, isn't it? And he's, he's speaking to Moses, the servant, the mediator to the people. Moses, why are you praying? You know what you're supposed to do. Obey. You, this is not the time to pray. It's the time to obey. Wow. Is that not a challenge? How many times can we couch, couch ourselves um, this, is, this cuts both ways, doesn't it? Oftentimes, we don't take the time to wait, and we just forge ahead without communing with the Lord. And other times, we don't really want to forge ahead, and so we just, you know, sanctify our lethargy. Well, uh, let's pray about it. I do need to pray a lot to get wisdom and figure out how to answer. Sometimes I answer too quickly. But this is fascinating, isn't it? Why are you calling out to me? 
And, and the Lord gives Moses his promise. Verse 15, go forward. Where are they and where are they facing? The sea. They, they camped so that the front, the leaders, were facing the sea. Go forward. Advance. So we put these together. Stand firm, that is, don't retreat, don't cower, but move forward. And, and Moses brings the signal. He raises his staff. That's what the Lord tells him to do. And, and as the waters open, it provides a way. Now, let, let's skip ahead to the waters closing. The waters, interestingly, close the same way. The same hand that brings deliverance is the same hand that brings destruction. The way closes behind Israel. They ought to remember that. There's no way backward. Only forward. They should have always remembered this, but they will forget. The, the old is gone and the new is come. The Apostle Paul talked about his own spiritual life and his own journey this way. He says, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of knowing Christ Jesus, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead. This is God's promise to his people. Well, no sooner does he give his word than comes a display of his power. And verses 19 to the end of the chapter are this display of power. Notice in verse 19 what the Lord does first. He's been leading them. He, he doesn't ask his people to go anywhere that he hasn't gone first. And now, the angel of the Lord, the pillar, moves. Moves round about to the rear guard. Again, this context is in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 52. The Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And again, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 8 and 9. Then shall the light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And then you'll call upon the Lord, and the Lord will answer. You'll cry, and you'll say, here I am. The Lord is your rear guard. It's like Psalm 139. You hem me in and behind, and before you lay your hand upon me. Where can I flee from your presence? You can't. God has you covered. You belong to his people. You're covered. 
You're guarded, protected, round about you, surrounded by the glory of the Lord. Moses raises his staff and Israel passes through on dry ground. It's going to rain real soon. You read Psalm 77 and you realize that as, as Israel passes through on the dry ground, the rain comes behind them and, it, and it's getting all muddy and muck up behind them and then the chariots get, what, clogged up in the mud. You, you, you've seen that. You're, you're trying to get ahead of the rain and so you drive and you, the rain's catching up. You drive faster. Israel is driving through on dry ground and the rain is coming clogging up the chariot wheels. God's timing is just right on, you know? Like you can feel the enemy breathing on your back sometimes, can't you? But God's there. He's got the rear guard. Now there's all kinds of biblical, theological imagery going on here. and I, I just can't help but share some with you. What else was drowned in the sea out to the east? The locusts. Remember when the locusts came in chapter 10? Like an army. And then the wind comes up and blows them off in the sea and they drowned in the sea. And now it's not just the locusts, it's this armor-plated insect. Now it's the Egyptian army. What a foreshadowing. And not only that, but the, the whole creation account, the flood account with Noah, that's all wrapped up in the same language and vocabulary that's here. You got waters. You got chaos. You got, you know, the devil is in the chaos. The devil is in the abyss, in the deep. He wants to suck the people of God in and suck them down. And what does the Lord do? He blows his spirit in creation. The Spirit is the Ruach hovering over the surfaces of the chaos and the water. And the Spirit blows and God separates the water and the earth comes forth. The same word for Spirit, Ruach, is the word here for wind. God blows His Spirit, His Ruach, the wind, and the waters separate and the ground appears. The same thing in the, in the, in the uh, Genesis 8 account of, of Noah's flood. God's Spirit blows, the Ruach blows over the flood waters and it separates the waters and the ground appears. A new creation that is formed after the destruction of the old, after the judgment that has come because of sin. A new creation emerges and now this people is experiencing a new creation, a new nation, a new people, new life going forward, not going back. The old is gone, the new is come. And they cross over into that newness of life. Have you? Have you crossed by way of the sea? Paul talks about this in relationship to Jesus. That they all passed through the waters under Moses, but we have passed through the waters of the cross 
of Jesus Christ and passed from death unto life. Have you taken that journey? Have you followed Jesus, the way of the cross, dead to self, dead to sin, dead to Satan, and alive to Christ? And through those waters the, that are closed behind you, there's no going back like the old, other old song. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. God, Yahweh, is the God of life. Amun-Ra, one of the chief deities of Egypt, in, in their scriptures, dies every evening at sunset and resurrects to new life every sunrise. Not this time. The text says, at sunrise, right at the peak of Egypt's God's strength and demonstration of power over life, he fails them. But the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God, brings life. That is the power of God demonstrated here. But know this. This water is indeed a means of salvation, but it's also a means of judgment. Noah was saved through the water. The Hebrews now are saved through the water. Do you remember when Moses was in his own little ark? Same word for Noah's ark. Moses was in his own little ark and he's saved through the waters. The same water becomes a curse of God's wrath in judgment upon hardened hearts that will not worship Him, will not serve Him, will not surrender to Him, will not call Him Lord, will not call Him Master. And the water is bad enough. And, and we, we, we recoil at such violence. How, how can... God do this. We're, we're quick to forget on one hand how Pharaoh had thrown the baby boys of the Hebrews into the water to kill them. The very tactics and strategies that the world will use will come round about on them. They will ambush themselves. Yes, God is good, God is gracious, and God saves, but God is just. And when we call for justice, this is, this is only an illustration of eternal justice. Does God judge the nations? Yes. Is He judging the nations yet today? Yes. Do I exactly know what's going on in all the wars around the world? No. But whether it's the Ukraine or the Sudan or any other place, God is using these as instruments to bring forth His justice in the world. The ultimate, final 
display of God's justice will come not with water, but a baptism of fire. This is what, this is what John the Baptist says about Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, he says, the one, he's going to baptize, I baptize you with the water for repentance, but the one who comes after me, the one whose sandal I can't even untie, he's coming and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And we think, yeah, I want the fire. No, you don't. Read the next verse. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat in the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what baptism of fire is. His judgment. The king of kings, the lord of lords, on the second return, bringing the final judgment and outpouring of justice. Here's what it looks like in Revelation 20. I'll pick it up in verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. By the way, this is the white throne you sang about a couple songs ago. Now, we, we, this is in chapter 20. We're not going to fight over whether we are actually standing at the white throne or not. We're just thankful that Jesus took care of it for us. The dead, small and great, are standing before the throne and the books are opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead are judged by what is written in the books according to what they'd done. That is, what they'd done with the Lamb. What did they do with Jesus? And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, including the Egyptian army. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each group of them, according to what they'd done with the Lamb. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Have you crossed the sea by way of Jesus? Have you followed the Lamb? If you haven't, then we've just read your destiny for all eternity. May this not be your experience. You've heard the way out to follow Jesus, to turn away from the dead and turn to Him who is life. What do we take from this in repeated places throughout the, par the paragraph where you have the grace of God? It's all the grace of God. Israel couldn't get themselves out of Egypt. Israel couldn't save themselves from the Egyptian army. You and I cannot save ourselves from the, the greater satanic power, the devil himself. You and I cannot save ourselves from our sins. We are totally locked in and trapped. It is the grace of God and God alone that can save. And it is all to the glory of the Lord. Verses 4, 17, and 18 
repeat this, they will glorify me. Both Pharaoh and Moses. God is glorified in a demonstration of grace and justice. This is so that the world will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord. Verses 4 and 18. This passage is about God, first and foremost. But here's the response, and it doesn't come until verses 31. Fear the Lord and believe Him. Fear the Lord and believe Him. So, God, take this truth. Um, Impress it upon our minds and our hearts that not one of us here this morning would be drowned in a sea of sin and self. And the last day, getting exactly what we wanted complete separation from you. God changed the heart, changed the desire. And we who have crossed over from death to life, we still tend to look backwards. Maybe even play along the other side of the shore and dip in our toes in that water of death. God, be the rear guard that would even keep us from going back. The shepherd of our soul guiding us forward. That great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. We call upon You to deliver us. And we would obediently step forward in faith, believing that everything we need for life is in Jesus, our satisfaction. And the Lord, as we've dealt with eternal matters, until Jesus comes, we have some temporal things that concern us. And we ask that you indeed would, would meet our needs body, soul, and spirit. For the hurting and the sick among us, for the discouraged, the depressed, for the economic despair and fear 